Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. June 19, 1865 proved to be a day many white people in Texas were dreading. That was the day when Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army landed in Galveston, leading a squad of 1,800 bluecoats under him. Just two months earlier, General Robert E. Lee surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. But even after news of Lee's surrender began to spread, many people refused to accept it. It would take another 16 months before President Andrew Johnson officially declared the conflict to be over in August 1866. Across the South and into the West, reports continued about pockets of Confederate resistance. On May 12th, a force of 350 Confederates near Brownsville, Texas, defeated 800 Union troops in the Battle of Palmetto Ranch. The Army of the Trans-Mississippi held out for another month before issuing their own formal surrender on June 2nd. And even after knowing the Confederacy had lost, many former rebels kept right on bushwhacking and plundering wherever they thought they could get away with it. By then, Texas was considered to be one of the last safe places for slave owners from Mississippi, Louisiana, and other southern states to the east. When the Union captured New Orleans in 1862, many of those same slave owners headed to Texas, bringing with them more than 150,000 enslaved people. This, coupled with the enslaved people that were already there or brought over by Southerners trying to preserve their way of life, meant that by 1865 there were around a quarter million slaves in the Lone Star State when Major General Granger made the following proclamation. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. None of this was exactly news to the slave owners. 
One story goes that a messenger from the North had come to Texas sometime earlier with orders from on high that the slaves must be freed, but his news was greeted with a bullet to the chest. Even after Granger delivered his message from the United States government, most plantation owners held out as long as they could before sharing the news with the men and women who had once been their property. In many cases, the plantation owners waited until after the next harvest, or even until Union soldiers showed up on their doorsteps before revealing the truth. Throughout Texas that year, many whites still routinely murdered black people who tried to flee after learning they were now free men. You can often find black corpses swinging from trees along the Sabine River, or discover their bullet-riddled bodies left to rot in the dirt where they'd been shot. And yet, even still, the date of June 19th would become a date of celebration for the black community across the country. Initially, there was some debate whether the date celebrating the end of slavery should be set for January 1st, the date of the Emancipation Proclamation. But since that was also New Year's Day, after much debate among black leaders, June 19th, or Juneteenth as it came to be shortened, would become the official date the end of slavery would be celebrated. It seems then only fitting that, in 1979, Texas became the first state to declare Juneteenth an official holiday. Today, most other states and the District of Columbia also officially recognize Juneteenth. But even though June 19th is considered a time for celebration, we mustn't forget the long, hard road black people in America have endured along the way. Jim Crow laws, lynchings, mass incarcerations. The list goes on and on of ways in which black people in the United States have suffered due to the ugly cancer of racism. And these are things that continue even today when, as I write these words, people are marching in the streets all across the country, demanding justice and for their voices to be heard. If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, then you'll know today is Juneteenth, which is, of course, a day of celebration. But since this is a history podcast and a dark history podcast at that. I wanted to take a few minutes to tell you a story about one of the most ugly and shameful racial incidents in American history. One that has a direct bearing on where we stand as a nation even today. It all began back in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, when stories of a white woman being assaulted by a black man led to a mob of white rioters burning the prosperous black neighborhood of Greenwood to the ground. I'm Nate Hale, And to quote George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this is The Conspirators. Throughout the early 1800s, as more and more people settled throughout the United States, so too did the federal and state governments take steps to clear the way of the indigenous population in order to make room for white settlers to lay down roots. A lot of the removal of Native Americans from the designated Indian territories began in 1828, following the election of President Andrew Jackson. Despite many tribes appealing directly to the federal government for help in fighting new laws several states enacted against them, Those pleas fell on deaf ears. On May 28, 1830, President Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which would result in tens of thousands of acres of newly emptied lands to the west suddenly becoming up for grabs. 
1866, Congress passed legislation that granted the railroads permission to lay down tracks that drove right through Indian Territory to the west. And with those new tracks, so too did white settlers come with them. Over time, more bills would be passed through Congress in order to seize even more land from the Native Americans who already occupied the space. This included thousands of miles of southwestern wilderness and Indian Territory that would eventually become the state of Oklahoma. Following the passage of the Indian Appropriation Bill, President Benjamin Harrison made the declaration that on April 22, 1889, a massive swath of unassigned land in Indian Territory would be made available to any settlers who wanted it. After that, thousands of frenzied settlers poured into the area on horseback, wagon, train, and by foot hoping to stake a 40-acre claim. At exactly noon on April 22nd, Soldiers from the U.S. Cavalry sounded bugles and fired guns in the air, signaling that the Great Land Rush of 1889 had begun. The place where you had to register your claim was a crudely built wooden building in the middle of what would rapidly expand into the town of Guthrie. Within four months, an entire town sprung up around that one tiny shack, including 16 barbers, two cigar makers, seven hardware stores, 15 hotels, 40 restaurants, six banks, and 81 lawyers. Even though the majority of people moving to the area hoping to stake a claim were white, there were also a large number of black people who moved to the Oklahoma Territory fleeing the racial injustice of the Jim Crow South. For a time, Oklahoma seemed like a real land of opportunity for black residents looking to start over. Between 1865 and 1920, African Americans founded more than 50 black townships throughout Oklahoma, making it the largest black enclave in the West. For a time, the town of Guthrie even allowed some blacks to serve in some territorial government positions. An African-American man named Townsend Jackson would go on to be elected Justice of the Peace. Then, later on, he was appointed to the Guthrie Police Force and even formed the territory's first black militia. After Oklahoma achieved statehood, the white governor appointed Jackson to serve as an Oklahoma delegate to a national conference on African-American education. Jackson's son Andrew even earned a spot in the freshman class at Meharry Medical College, the nation's best medical school for black doctors. You could find success stories like Jackson's all through Oklahoma by the end of the 19th century. But all that prosperity didn't last. In 1907, following Oklahoma becoming the 46th state, the state legislature passed their own form of Jim Crow laws, relegating blacks to a caste system in which they once again became second-class citizens. Within a few years, Guthrie's mayor ordered Townsend Jackson to limit his policing to only the black sections of town. This sort of treatment incensed Jackson, and he and a lot of other members of Guthrie's black community began looking elsewhere for a place where black folks could be treated with respect. One such place lay a hundred miles east, in the booming oil town of Tulsa. Stories began to spring forth about a prosperous black neighborhood called Greenwood, that became so wealthy it even earned the nickname of the Black Wall Street. It's a man named O.W. Gurley who is credited with starting Greenwood. He was born to former slaves on Christmas Day, 1868. He moved with them from Alabama to Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where he worked on his father's farm and got his education in the public school. He then worked as a teacher for a short while before getting a job working for the post office which was considered a lucrative career for black people back in the day. But Gurley had bigger ambitions. He staked a land claim in Oklahoma in 1893, 
After that, he served for a time as a school principal before opening a mercantile store in the town of Perry. Then Gurley's fortunes changed once again after oil drillers struck black gold in 1905 near the village of Tulsa. This started a new miniature land rush as thousands of people moved into the area hoping to strike it rich themselves in the oil business. Gurley saw this as another opportunity and started a boarding house in the neighborhood of Greenwood, which took its name from another black town in Arkansas. From there, Greenwood just grew and grew. Practically all the newly wealthy and middle-class white residents living in the area wanted to employ black maids, gardeners, chauffeurs, and other domestic help. Across downtown Tulsa, black people were hired to work as bellhops, doormen, and shoeshine boys, all of which were jobs that paid well by African-American standards. In fact, some of those same shoeshine boys and bellhops began raking in more money in tips than some black lawyers and teachers made. But because blacks could not shop in white stores, that meant they needed to spend their money elsewhere. Greenwood was that place. Back in 1916, Tulsa passed an ordinance that mandated residential segregation by forbidding blacks or whites from residing on any block where three-quarters or more of the residents were of either race. This only further helped set the stage for the rapid growth of the Greenwood District. Greenwood became home to all sorts of stores and businesses that were forbidden to black people in white neighborhoods. In Greenwood, you could find black barbers, movie theaters, photography studios, dentist's offices, dry cleaners, undertakers, tailors, grocery stores, restaurants, and more. They also had their seedy side where you could purchase bootleg liquor, drugs, or hire the services of a sex worker. But all this newfound prosperity for black people living in the area didn't go unnoticed and it sparked a lot of anger and jealousy in whites living nearby. By early 1921, Tulsa boasted a population of more than 100,000 people. Most of the city's 10,000 African-American residents either lived in Greenwood or resided in the homes of the white people who employed them. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Following World War I, the country saw a spike in incidents of racial violence including a resurgence in such white supremacist groups as the Ku Klux Klan. In 1919, the country saw at least two dozen race riots in major cities such as Washington, D.C., Houston, Chicago, and Atlanta. Many white people argued that uppity black people were stealing their jobs and no longer knew their place. In Chicago, a young black child swimming in Lake Michigan drifted too close to a beach reserved for whites. White people along the beach stoned and drowned the young boy to death. This sparked off a fistfight between blacks and whites on the beach that led to weeks of more violence, during which hundreds of black homes were burned and dozens of people were left dead. In Washington, D.C., a white woman made a groundless rape accusation against two black men. That led to scores of white soldiers, marines, and sailors hunting the streets for any black person they could get their hands on to settle the score and beat them viciously. In 1917, in East St. Louis, a riot broke out that led to nearly two dozen black people being killed. This included a group of people who were shot dead by white police officers, an enraged white woman who slashed a black woman's throat, and a white mob that shot a black toddler 
and tossed his body from a burning building. In Memphis, Tennessee, an angry mob snatched up a black murder defendant and hacked off his ears before dousing him in gasoline and setting him on fire. Also in Tennessee, whites shoved a white-hot poker into the eyes of a black man, then continued burning him by pressing the hot poker against his genitals, before finally tossing his body on a bonfire. Local newspapers actually ran ads that night inviting the public to bring the kids and come see the show. Back in Tulsa, crime rates remained extremely high throughout the city, and white residents blamed much of that on African Americans. By the time violence finally erupted there in 1921, the city already had its own history of vigilante justice. In August 1920, a white mob lynched a white teenager accused of murder. 18-year-old Roy Belton was arrested by police for the murder of a cab driver named Homer Nida. Belton swore he only meant to rob the man and that his gun went off accidentally. But before Belton ever got a chance to plead his case to a jury, an angry mob of over a thousand men and women descended on the county courthouse, disarmed the sheriff, and dragged Belton from his cell. With a caravan a mile long following behind, Belton was driven to a location just south of where the shooting took place. There the mob strung the young man up by the neck and hung him from an oversized billboard until he was dead. Later on, the robe used to lynch him was cut into tiny pieces and handed out as souvenirs, along with scraps of the man's clothing and shoes. Tulsa Police Chief John Gustafson later told the press that whereas he didn't condone vigilante justice, he felt it may have been called for in this particular instance. There are certain details about the events leading up to the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 that are either lost to time or have become so jumbled by differing accounts it's become impossible to sort out what really happened. The official story goes that on May 30th, 1921, Dick Rowland, a young African-American shoeshine boy, got into an elevator with a white elevator operator named Sarah Page in a building in downtown Tulsa. What happened next remains a little unclear. Most historians today claim Roland tripped and accidentally stepped on Page's foot. But by the following day, the Tulsa Tribune had published an article claiming that Roland attempted to rape Sarah Page despite this being broad daylight in a busy office building. An interview during the early 1970s with one of Roland's relatives even suggested that he and Page may have been romantically involved at some point. No matter what their relationship was or what really occurred on that elevator, just weeks after the incident, Page would recant her story and Roland would go free. But by then, the damage had already been done. One thing we do know is this. Just a few months prior to the incident occurring, a new editor and publisher of the Tulsa Tribune was hired named Richard Lloyd-Jones. Right from the beginning of his career with the Tribune, Jones began publishing a series of highly inflammatory editorials, pontificating about all the ways he thought society's ills could be solved. On December 23, 1920, in response to the city's high crime rate, Jones published an article calling for 1,000 reputable and trustworthy citizens to be sworn in as deputy police and given firearms, with orders to shoot anyone found in the act of committing a robbery. This came just a few months before thousands of angry citizens descended on the Tulsa courthouse and lynched Roy Belton. Over the next year, Jones would continue to publish many raging editorials that expounded on his worldview and heavily criticized many Tulsa political figures. Jones had an opinion on everything. He would often quote scripture and even describe his affinity for the Ku Klux Klan. 
He temporarily got himself in some hot water when some private investigators hired to surveil him, first recorded him with his secretary describing his attempts to dodge massive debts he owed to the banks. Then later, those same investigators recorded him getting hot and heavy with his secretary in a Tulsa hotel room. Although the scandal was revealed publicly, it soon fizzled when members of the KKK began openly protecting Jones and preventing law enforcement or any other private investigators to get anywhere near him. Thus it came to be that on May 31, 1921, Richard Lloyd Jones published his most explosive editorial ever. Although within hours of that edition of the Tulsa Tribune hitting the streets, Jones's editors prevailed on him to retract his editorial and republish the paper with a toned-down version. As a result, no complete copies of that particular edition exist today, so we don't know the exact content of the editorial, but we know enough. Even though Jones had the first edition of that paper pulled, it still managed to get in the hands of hundreds of Tulsa residents who read it and passed it around. And the one thing we know for certain is that in the original version of Jones's editorial, he called for the white residents of Tulsa to come together and lynch Dick Rowland. Right from the very beginning, even the police officers who investigated the incident began to think there was nothing to Sarah Page's accusations. According to Rowland, he had gotten in the elevator with the intention of using the bathroom one floor up. But in his excitement at seeing the pretty Sarah Page inside the elevator, he tripped, grabbed her arm for balance, and accidentally stomped on her foot. Roland tried to apologize, but Page had both a temper and an ingrown toenail on the foot Roland stepped on. And by the time the elevator doors opened again on the ground floor, Page was screaming that she'd been assaulted. Roland ran back to his mother's house, but police arrested him the following day. At the courthouse following the arrest, Sheriff William McCullough confided in Roland's mother, Damie, that he didn't think there was anything to the charges and that Paige had a bad reputation around town. Damie wasn't Dick's biological mother, but she had taken him in as a young orphan and raised him as her own. But even though Sheriff McCullough expressed great sympathy with Damie Rowland and tried to reassure her that her boy would get through this, at the same time, he also suggested she contact a prominent white attorney named Washington Hudson, whom McCullough described as the best lawyer in town. According to McCullough, Hudson had all the right connections to make the charges go away. This was true. In just a few years, Hudson would become the Democratic floor leader in the Oklahoma State Senate. But one thing McCullough failed to disclose to Damie was that Hudson was also a prominent member of Tulsa's chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan got its start back in 1866 when a half-dozen bitter Confederate veterans got together in Pulaski, Tennessee and talked about what they could do to keep the spirit of the South alive, following their humiliating defeat in the Civil War. They came up with the idea of starting a group dedicated to promoting racial purity. At first, the best name they could come up with was The Circle. But then one of them had the idea to translate the word circle into the Greek word kuklos, the more the men talked, the more the words transformed into Ku Klux. Eventually, they added the word clan for alliteration purposes. Members began donning bedsheets to hide their identities and adorning themselves with occult symbols to make themselves even more terrifying. What started out as a tiny handful of members who set out to terrify superstitious blacks, that they were seeing the ghosts of the Confederate dead, soon exploded into a massive force of tens of thousands of like-minded racists who added violence, arson, and murder to their repertoire. In April 1871, following a congressional inquiry into the hundreds of stories emerging from the South about the Klan's reign of terror, 
President Ulysses S. Grant signed a bill that not only forbade groups of two or more individuals to conspire together while wearing disguises, but also authorized the use of military force and suspended habeas corpus when such conduct was considered widespread and destructive. Over the following months, Grant sent thousands of U.S. troops down south to stop the Klan's activities by any means necessary. And it mostly worked. Clan members hung up their bedsheets and crawled back into the shadows, at least for a few decades. Then in 1915, a young filmmaker named D.W. Griffith produced the first major Hollywood blockbuster, The Birth of a Nation. This was the story of a white-robed Southern army. That was very clearly the KKK triumphing over rampaging gangs of sex-crazed blacks, looking to steal the virtues of white women and destroy the white way of life. The film depicted the most vile racial stereotypes imaginable. And yet it still went on to become a bona fide box office hit with the public. It also sparked a huge resurgence in KKK membership throughout the country. That included a major presence in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. Following World War I, many white veterans returned to Tulsa armed with caches of smuggled weapons they brought home from the front lines. Many of them saw the rampant crime and the ongoing economic downturn, and decided the Klan offered them the best chance to both clean up the streets and bring back all the good jobs stolen by blacks. The idea that a neighborhood like Greenwood even existed at all was an affront to their white sensibilities. Here were all these black people with money experiencing all the things these racists thought they deserved. In the years following the attack on Greenwood, some historians argued that the Klan had only an incidental effect on the events that followed. But one thing we do know is the Tulsa Klan's leadership firmly believed one thing. That the best way to increase Klan membership was a good old-fashioned riot. On the evening of May 31st, 1921, police took Dick Rowland and placed him inside the very same cell that just months earlier, another angry mob dragged Roy Belton out of and lynched him. This time, though, a mob of more than a thousand angry white people was met by a much smaller group of armed African-Americans out to protect the accused prisoner. To his credit, the newly elected Sheriff McCullough was determined to not repeat the mistakes of his predecessor, bowing to protect Roland at any cost. He positioned armed officers along the courthouse's roof, and when enraged men began packing into the courthouse demanding the sheriff hand over the prisoner, McCullough stood his ground. By 9.30 that night, as word began to spread throughout Greenwood about the growing white mobs surrounding the courthouse, about 50 to 60 black men armed with rifles and shotguns showed up on the scene to help support the sheriff and his deputies. But many members of the white mob didn't take the sight of a bunch of armed black men lightly. Many of them rushed over to the National Guard Armory on 6th Street, hoping to bust in and supply themselves with small arms and ammunition. But soldiers guarding the armory threatened to shoot any looter who attempted to get inside. By that point, the mob of angry white people had doubled in size to more than 2,000. We don't know who fired the first shot, and in fact, some suggestions have been made that someone's gun went off accidentally. But whatever happened, the result was the same. Within seconds, the first wave of gunfire shattered the night, and by the time the shooting was done, ten white people and two blacks were either dead or dying in the street. There was no stopping the chaos after that. A rolling gunfight broke out in the streets of Tulsa. 
The black contingent retreated back to Greenwood with the white mob in hot pursuit. Panic set in as white gunmen began firing at any black face they saw. Couples coming out of Greenwood's movie theater scrambled for cover as bullets flew at them. By 11 p.m., the National Guard was assembling at the armory to come up with a battle plan to quell the violence. Many of these troops surrounded Greenwood and began protecting the white-run businesses all around, but left Greenwood to fend for itself. Eventually, orders came down from up high and soldiers began rounding up black men and women off the streets and taking them to the convention hall on Brady Street for detention. As midnight struck, a group of white rioters were still attempting to storm the courthouse, but Sheriff McCullough's men continued to hold them off. Around 1 a.m., the white mob began setting buildings on fire. Most of these fires started on Archer Street at the southern edge of Greenwood. When the Tulsa Fire Department rushed to put out the blaze, armed gunmen confronted them and drove them off. Any firefighter who even attempted to put out the blaze in Greenwood was told they'd be shot. Within a few hours, more than two dozen black-owned businesses were engulfed in flames. By the time dawn broke, many armed members of Greenwood's community had reorganized and were fighting back against the white mob. At 5 a.m., a train whistle went off. Some people thought this might be a signal for an all-out assault on Greenwood. A white man stepped out of cover near the train depot and was shot dead by a sniper. A gang of five white men tried barreling into the heart of Greenwood in a car but were cut down by a hail of gunfire. There are differing accounts about the aerial assault on Greenwood. Although everyone agreed that planes were spotted circling overhead that day, what they were actually doing up there remains a point of contention. Later on, a government commission investigating the massacre would claim the planes were dispatched from a nearby airfield to merely surveil the area in order to get a better view of the, quote, black uprising. But there were many witnesses who swore they saw pilots dropping burning turpentine balls on buildings throughout Greenwood. Machine gun fire could be heard chattering through the neighborhood as terrified people fled their homes or hid for their lives. As the violence began to spread further outside the Greenwood area, many of the wealthy and middle-class white residents of Tulsa began turning in their live-in black servants to the authorities, where they were sent to makeshift detention centers. By 9.15 a.m., the Oklahoma governor began further organizing the State National Guard to quell the violence. He declared martial law in Tulsa, an order that would remain in place for several days. Thousands of black residents fled the city. It's estimated that around 6,000 more were arrested and detained. By noon, the National Guard rushed in and managed to suppress much of the violence. One National Guard captain reported that so much ammunition and explosives was being stockpiled in various buildings that once the fire reached them, many of the structures simply exploded. The Tulsa massacre quickly became national news. On June 1, 1921, the Tulsa Tribune reported that nine white people and 68 black people had been killed. But those numbers kept inching up over time. Even today, the exact number remains in contention. More than 800 people were admitted to the hospitals. In 2001, a state commission examining the events confirmed 36 dead, 26 black, and 10 white. Although other estimates have placed the number of dead as high as 300. To this day, there are historians who still use ground-penetrating radar looking for mass graves. By the time the smoke cleared, at least 10,000 black residents of Greenwood were left homeless, resulting in more than $2 million worth of personal and property damage. That's a number equivalent to more than $32.25 million in today's money. No one ever recuperated any money, nor were they ever compensated for it. Officially, the insurance companies washed their hands of the incident and refused to pay out by declaring the entire incident was a 
quote, riot, not a massacre. Which, in the eyes of the law, meant they didn't have to pay a dime. State Attorney General S.P. Freeling initiated an investigation into what happened in Greenwood. In the end, the all-white jury attributed the riot to the actions of black rioters. Although 27 cases were brought before the court as well as 85 individual indictments, no one was ever convicted of any sort of criminal acts in the Tulsa Massacre of 1921. Many black businessmen attempted to rebuild, even despite the insurance companies refusing to pay for their claims. But a group of influential white developers persuaded the city to pass new fire ordinances that made it even more difficult for many blacks to rebuild in Greenwood. Several business owners sued, and the case went all the way to the Oklahoma Supreme Court, where the ordinance would eventually be ruled unconstitutional. But even still, further rezoning by the city's leaders forced many members of the black community to permanently leave Greenwood and move even further to the outskirts of the city. One way or another, the white residents of Tulsa made sure that the black Wall Street would never happen again. Even though the Tulsa Massacre became national news at the time, it quickly became forgotten. Few history books mention it, nor did the Tulsa Tribune when they did a retrospective article about the city's history decades later. A few government commissions have occurred over the years to determine the reasons behind the massacre. In 1996, a new Oklahoma commission began to investigate the massacre. In February 2001, they issued their final report in which they recommended the government pay reparations to the surviving black residents and a memorial be built for the victims. In March 2001, each of the 118 known survivors of the riot who were still alive at the time were given a gold-plated medal bearing the state seal. Although 300 college scholarships were set up in the name of the Tulsa Massacre victims, and a memorial was built in John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park, no reparations have ever been paid. As of last year, the group Human Rights Watch and other community organizations were still demanding reparations for the descendants. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Racism is not a problem that can be solved overnight, but I believe it can be solved through education, compassion, and learning to understand the difficulties so many members of society struggle with. Right now, American society is at the heart of a massive global movement to demand justice for people who have been targeted their whole lives, simply for the color of their skin. If you're interested in helping support the Black Lives Matter movement, there are hundreds of organizations you can donate to including the NAACP, the ACLU, the Bail Project, and of course, Black Lives Matter. If you're interested in supporting any of these worthy causes, I'll put links in the show notes. In other business, I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Kaylee, Christina, and Damien. Special thanks need to go out to Barra and John as well for your generous donations to help support the podcast. Not only can you help support the show by signing up for Patreon, where you can get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes, but we also have a donate button on our website as well. Another great way you can help support the show is to tell your friends about us and to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word about the conspirators even more. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on most of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. You can also find us on most of the major social media platforms, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
If you have time, drop us a line at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time.